Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yin Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Manu Karuka speaking about his book, Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad, published in 2019 by the University of California Press. Manu Karuka is Assistant Professor of American Studies at Barnard College, where he's taught since 2014, and where he's also an affiliated faculty member with Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Karuka teaches courses on Indigenous Studies, American Studies, and the Political Economy of Race. His work has appeared in Theory and Event, J19, and Critical Ethnic Studies, among other venues. And he's also co-edited The Sun Never Sets, South Asian Migrants in an Age of U.S. Power, published by NYU Press in 2013. In our conversation, Manu Karuka and I talk about gaining inspiration from W.E.B. Du Bois, about interweaving the empirical and the theoretical in a book project, and also about unveiling the imperial and completely unexceptional origins of the United States. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Manu Karuka about his book, Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad. Manu is Assistant Professor of American Studies at Barnard College in New York City. Manu, welcome to the show. Thank you. Manu, I wonder if you could begin this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Let's see. I grew up in a multiracial working-class immigrant community in New Jersey in the 1980s. Uh, and, you know, this is in the, the Reagan era. So uh, the elders in my community, my parents and their friends, I was grew up around a group of people who were involved in solidarity with uh, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, solidarity with Palestinian liberation movements, and solidarity with movements in Latin America, uh, Chilean and other refugees of authoritarian governments. So I grew up there, moved around in New Jersey a bit, and I went off to Oberlin uh, in Ohio for college, where I studied music and South Asian studies. At Oberlin, I was uh, deeply interested and involved in studying subaltern studies. This was in the late 90s. And I was very interested in the ways that the subaltern studies school was uh, looking at the history and the historiography of colonialism in South Asia. So those are major uh, points of interest for me. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on indenture in Fiji and Trinidad. Uh, and uh, that's what I thought I was going to do in graduate school. And so I spent some time between college and grad school, but I started in at NYU in 2001, and uh, 9-11 happened a few weeks after I began graduate school. And at, uh, the experience of living in the place where I'd grown up, in the communities where I'd grown up uh, and uh, living in the aftermath of that, I think really reshaped my plans for research. Uh, And uh, that's what brought me to this work. And at NYU, I was fortunate to study with uh, several people who continue to be really important mentors to me. Gary Okahiro, who was teaching then at Columbia University and is now at Yale, was a very close and remains a very close mentor of mine. I studied with Vijay Prashad in graduate school, and I continued to learn from his work. And I studied and worked also with Walter Johnson and Lisa Dugan. I see. Yeah, the the 9-11 angle um, and its relation to how you then come to 
looking at North America as a site was interesting insofar as, and we'll talk about this later on, um, the way that you discuss it in the epilogue uh, of the book and, and how it comes back into shaping how you think about the, the long sort of um, trajectory uh, of the kind of uh, continental imperialism that you study in, 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 um, and write about in Empire's Tracks. I, I read um, uh, in preparing for this conversation that um, you know one of your uh, um, uh, great models of scholarship, one, one of the sort of books that you consider to be you know, the greatest work of U.S. history that's been written is Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. Yeah. Um, did you encounter that at Oberlin? Uh, was that sort of a later arrival um, in, in, in graduate school? Um, how, did you, how did you come to develop this relationship with Du Bois? Uh, Black Reconstruction is a text, you know, uh, I began trying to read it on my own, I think, when I was an undergraduate, uh, and came back to it uh, in graduate school, reading it. And I think it's a text uh, I think I'll be continuing to read probably for as long as I'm doing intellectual work. It's a text that the more I learn about the history that Du Bois is writing about, uh, the more I learn about the theories that he's engaging in the book and, and uh, the the kind of array of ideas and concepts that he's drawing upon to theorize this history of reconstruction. And the more I learned about uh, the histories of the ongoing histories of radical change, of struggles for multiracial democracy in North America, the more I learn about these things, the more I think I become a better reader of Black Reconstruction. So it's a text I've been returning to um, uh, and, you know, really writing in relationship with, uh, you know, specific sentences or chapters or sections of the book for, for a long time. Yeah, and, and this maybe gets us into, um, you know, talking a little bit about how you came to write Empire's Tracks, because, you know, in, in uh, uh, one of the later chapters in the book, you, you engage with Du Bois, uh, in particular, his essay on imperialism. So maybe we can start off there by talking a little bit about how, how you came to write Empire's Tracks, how the project evolved um, uh, as, uh, uh, as a dissertation into, into your book. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the, the kernel for the, the whole project, the kernel for the book really was in that, in that period I talked about when I was introducing myself, the weeks after September 11th, when, if you recall, there was a, this sense of, uh, of, of, of unity of coming together of, of, people of community, of people taking care of each other and looking out for each other. And I think it was a uh, people were, you know, involved in these acts of community and mutual care, mutual aid that, that were, uh, uh, in many ways, I think they were, they were heartfelt, you know, there was, I'm, I'm not cynical about them, but uh, while this is happening, this intense display of care and mutual aid and community, um, at the same time, there was disappearances uh, in South Asian and Muslim communities, um, whispered stories of people's parents or uncles or grandparents or rel other relatives, friends going missing and nobody knows where they are. So uh, it was a really jarring experience. It's a really jarring time to be living in this area and to be moving through this space. Um, and so it, it was, and I'd also say in a really embodied way of feeling uh you know, in a really embodied way outside of this, uh, outside of this community of care, of aid. And that got me to think uh, as I was going to my classes and uh, thinking about the work we were reading and discussing, it got me to think, you know, there's, there's ways that uh, racial aliens are 
situated and positioned outside of the nation. If we think of the nation as this, as that space of of mutuality, um, and racial aliens, you know, in, in this instance, in this specific instance, it's Muslims and South Asians, and in many instances, it's it's other groups, but people who are racialized and seen as alien to the nation. And uh, you know, at Oberlin, I'd also been involved in um, and and also learning about. Um, just trying to establish indigenous studies on that campus and trying to learn and draw more connections with the community in Cleveland. Of course, in Cleveland, they're the mascot politics around their uh, baseball team there. And so this was also in my mind. And I was thinking, you know, there's, there's a way that racial aliens are situated outside of the nation. Um, there's also a way that indigenous peoples are situated outside of the nation. And that, you know, then I was thinking, well, I, I want to look at these two groups uh, the nation is almost, uh, at this point, I was thinking, the nation is almost like this negative space between these two these two groups of people. And I wanted to look and think what, if, if there's a historical site I can find to to see both of these groups in relationship to the, to each other and the, way, the ways that the nation is uh, is defined and posed in, in opposition to these groups. So that's what initially led me to the Transcontinental Railroad, where, of course, the railroad was built through indigenous land uh, in a highly contested process. And of course, at the same time, uh, very famously, the railroad, at least the, the Western leg of the railroad was built by pr primarily by Chinese workers, by Chinese immigrant workers or uh, people who had come from China. Um, so that's what initially led me to, to thinking about the transcontinental railroad. And then, uh, you know, the period that I was in graduate school uh, history began to unfold. So the United States uh, illegally and criminally invaded Iraq and occupied the country. And, uh, you know, in New York, I was involved in anti-war activism and trying to learn what was happening and, and why and how this could happen. And, uh, and uh, you know, reading in the business press, reading in uh, the archives of diplomacy uh, was shaping the ways I was thinking about um, the relevance of studying the transcontinental um, in our own day, the questions I was asking of the archives as I got deeper into the history. And then, of course, in 2008, there was the, the biggest financial crash in, in the global economy since the Great Depression. Uh, and then at the same time, trying to understand, well, what happened here? Uh, why did it happen? How has it affected people and how has it affected people differently? Uh, what kind of information is available about this? All of these questions, as I was living through them, were also shaping and reshaping the questions I was asking of the archive, uh, of the project as it was developing, of the work as I was going to it and revising it. Yeah, I, I think the what I want to pick up on maybe is is to go back a little bit to actually the beginning of what you what you said about the the sort of community. And care and mutual aid um, that emerged after 9/11, um, because it, it reminds me of of how, uh, or actually one of the key concepts, right, that you sort of set up in in the preface of the book, um, that is uh, one of the the sort of three big concepts that you help us to think through in Empire's Tracks, which is the the, the kind of modes of relationship um, that that people practice. Um, so I wonder if if that might lead us into then thinking a little bit about some of these larger um, ideas that, that you um, set up uh, for us to, to think about in the book. Um, and I'll just sort of say for the readers, 
um, that there are three of them, um, sort of three three uh, new ideas or, or, or ways to, to think about um, the, the history of continental uh, uh, expansion and imperialism um, in the 19th century. The first, which I've already mentioned, is modes of relationship. The second um, is continental imperialism. And here, I, I found it really interesting that you, you're also thinking about um, wars in Iraq and the, the financial crash of 2008, because you might perhaps here talk a little bit about the what you call the, the war finance nexus as well. Um, and then the third theme, um, which you bring up, and the third idea that you give us is the idea of counter-sovereignty. So I wonder if we could maybe start as you've given us a little bit of an idea of how you came to write the book, um, at a high level, how you think about these concepts um, so that the listeners uh, have a kind of foundation for our discussion as we start to talk about the chapters of the book. Yeah. Um, so let me begin by actually cycling back to Black Reconstruction and your question about Black Reconstruction, because Black, you know, Du Bois had a very long career and lived a very long life. He was very active over this long career and Black Reconstruction in in his life marks his turning point in which at which point he began to explicitly engage with the Marxist tradition and Marxist analysis. And what we see partly what we see in Black Reconstruction is Du Bois uh, engaging, I think in really conscious ways, uh, the work and the ideas of Marxism and, um, uh, and, and, and trying to see how they can be useful um, and reformulated in some ways uh, uh, or advanced in some ways to speak concretely of the history of North America. And these are lessons that I, I learned from reading Black Reconstruction and reading Du Bois. And so that's what led me to these three concepts, these three, um, let's say, higher level concepts or themes that I organized the book around um, counter-sovereignty, modes of relationship, and continental imperialism. Um, so I could talk about each of these concepts and how I came to them. Um, counter-sovereignty uh, is a concept that I arrived at. You know, I began studying indigenous studies really in a, in, a, in a serious way, committed myself to this study in graduate school. And one of the key words in indigenous studies is sovereignty. Uh, and so this was, a, this, this was a key word I had to study and understand what, what does this mean in, in, in the context of indigenous critique, of indigenous politics, and uh, what does it mean in a broader sense? And, uh, you know, in indigenous studies, sovereignty is theorizes is a way for us to understand and uh, see the ways that politically, culturally, intellectually, and otherwise, indigenous communities have this sovereign uh, authority, um, collective autonomous authority over their land. And the ways that I've been taught about indigenous sovereignty is that um, indigenous sovereignty is actually written into the U.S. Constitution. American Indian sovereignty is written into the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So uh, it's actually recognized within the formation and the framing of the United States itself. Um, so as I was studying this concept of sovereignty from indigenous studies, I began asking myself, uh, well, what is what is the sovereignty of the United States and how can we understand that and how, how can we explain that? And uh, how does in, in the terms of the United States itself, Congress or the executive or the Supreme Court, how does the United States explain its own sovereignty? And this is how I came to the concept of counter sovereignty because I haven't found any explanation of U.S. sovereignty or the sovereignty of particular states 
except in reaction and relation to indigenous communities or in reaction or relation to, or an acknowledgement of the historical fact of conquest of the theft of land and resources. So this is actually written into Supreme Court jurisprudence. It's written into congressional law, into the congressional record, and it's written into the archives of U.S. diplomacy and war. So counter-sovereignty for me is a way for us to understand that the United States as a political formation exists in reaction to indigenous life, to collective indigenous life, to indigenous politics. So um, counter-sovereignty, I think, is related to counterintelligence, to counterinsurgency, to counter-revolution. These are kind of relationships and forms of reaction, um, reactiveness. And there's an anxiety about counter-sovereignty. Um, there's an anxiety about what it's reacting to, um, what it imagines to, to exist. Um, and these are lessons not only from the history of colonialism in North America, um, but also uh, the history of colonialism in Africa, uh, in Asia, and in Latin America. Um, so the, the history of colonialism in the world at large. So counter-sovereignty is, for me, a way to understand the, the, how the United States declares its, its relationship to the land and its power of powers of jurisdiction over this land, over its territory. The second uh, larger theme is a the theme that you mentioned, uh, modes of relationship. And here in coming to this theme, I was drawing on work from indigenous feminist theorists. And in particular in the, in the book, in the chapter on modes of relationship, I engage Ella Deloria, uh, the Dakota ethnographer, and uh, Sarah Winnemucca, who was a Paiute activist, and uh, Winona LaDuke, who's an activist from White Earth, uh, uh, who's wor still working and doing very important work. So I, I read the, the work of the three, these three indigenous feminist thinkers uh, who, whose lives span over a century, a uh, century and a half. Uh, and I read them in relationship to um, Marx's own writings on uh, relations of production and um, the, you know, the production of relationships in capitalism. And I'm also here attentive to the traditions of Marxist and socialist feminism, which focus on social reproduction. And so for this uh, group of activists and theorists, they're uh, interested in the reproduction of labor, which is a predicate for the reproduction of capital. Capital cannot be re reproduced um, without the reprodu reproduction of workers. And so social reproduction becomes, for them, uh, a way to think about, in really materialist, concrete terms, um, the relationships and the work that, that go into uh, the production of capital. Um, and so modes of relationship, for me, I came to as a way to try to think about that term, indigenous sovereignty, in a way that um, can be materialist, that can be concrete, and that can really uh, foreground the relationships between indigenous women, uh, their relatives, and the, place, the places in which they live. So modes of relationship. And what I wanted to look to here was the ways that these indigenous feminist critics and theorists and activists are looking and analyzing not only uh, the modes of relationships of their own nations or of indigenous peoples more generally, perhaps, but also the ways that they are theorizing and analyzing the modes of relationship of capitalism and of the United States. Uh, and what I find is that uh, they, they argue that um, 
capitalism produces uh, partition. It produces isolation. It produces death on a on a really unimaginable scale. It produces uh, the loss of life. Uh, and so th there, there, I, I think that there's a there there is a critique of political economy embedded in their work, and then there's a there's a deep analysis and critical analysis of capitalism embedded in their work. And I think that modes of relationship, for me at least, helps me to see that, to clarify that. And the last theme I organized the book around is what I call continental imperialism. And here uh, in the chapter on continental imperialism, I draw on the work of uh, Lenin, uh, Lenin's book on imperialism, and Du Bois's article, The African Roots of War. And both Lenin and Du Bois were writing uh, at the very beginning of the First World War, and they were trying to explain to their readers, to their audiences, uh, why did the First World War happen? And the answer for both of them was imperialism. And the answer for both of them was actually the European imperialism in Africa, the scramble and conflict over control and power in the African continent. I, I read uh, Lenin and Du Bois in relationship to Frederick Jackson Turner. Turner is foundational to U.S. history for his frontier thesis. Uh, and Turner was looking at the U.S. census and um, centers of population of settlers, of Americans, and looking at a map uh, of North America and seeing that, uh, according to the census, there were no parts of North America which were uh, which were. Uh, uh, under a kind of a frontier situation anymore. The the entire continent, according to the census, had been settled. And so Turner was, at, was asking in this essay, in this address, uh, what happens to the United States after the end of the frontier? And I want to read, and I, I read in this chapter, Turner in relationship to Du Bois and to Lenin, uh, because I think that for me, what has been, traditionally posed as westward expansion uh, of the United States, can actually be understood in many ways, historically, concretely, as imperialism. Uh, and that's a historical process, and it's also a contemporary process. It's an ongoing process. So with continental imperialism, I want to draw links to the process of imperialism that, uh, that is occurring elsewhere in the world at this time. And I also want to draw links... Uh, to uh, the theories of imperialism that have been made about uh, imperialism in Africa and elsewhere in the colonized world. And the war finance nexus is a phrase that I came upon and I return to and I try to develop over the course of the book, which to me is a, a, concrete, under, a, a concrete way to understand, a really specific way to understand what imperialism is, how I understand imperialism. And this is really from my reading of Du Bois and Lenin. They're their theories and analysis of imperialism. And so uh, I think, you know, in our culture, in our intellectual culture today, um, we're accustomed to thinking of imperialism as cultural or as ideological. So, for example, um, when we critique globalization and the spread of American pop culture, let's say Hollywood or pop music, or the spread of McDonald's or, you know, the the uh, the other kind of cultural attributes of the United States to uh, to the global South. And so that's understood as imperialism, or it's understood as ideological, the uh, the valuation of, of Europe and the, the global North to the detriment of the South. 
And these are important, significant dimensions of imperialism. But uh, what I want to return to in my in, in what I'm drawing drawing upon from Lenin and Du Bois is imperialism is where we see uh, the leadership, the lead of finance capital in global capitalism and within capitalist nations, and uh, and as with the leadership of finance capital, uh, this leads to conflict between imperial imperial powers, uh, and that leads to war. So the Indian the Indian historian Amiya Kumar Bakshi has a definition of imperialism as the persistent tendency of mature capitalist states to foment violent crisis. Uh, and I think that definition to me draws upon this uh, tendency, inherent tendency, within imperialism, um, within the rule of finance capital to foment these forms of violent crisis. So again, Du Bois and Lenin were writing and charting and trying to explain what led to the First World War, war on a scale that was unimaginable for the people alive at that time. I think... Uh, I draw upon this concept of imperialism and the war finance nexus to try to understand and explain uh, continental imperialism, the expansion of the United States over the continent, which also happened on a scale of violence that was unimaginable for the people who lived through it and experienced it. Yeah, thank you for for, um, sort of summarizing those concepts um, so clearly. I think so many of of us who, who are interested not only in Asian American studies and American studies, but also in U.S. history would benefit from, you know, a, a, a sort of rethinking of, of the idea of sovereignty uh, for the United States as counter-sovereignty and, and some of the other ideas that you've brought up. You've helped us start to get a sense of the layout of the book. And before we actually again turn to the chapters, I want to sort of ask quickly about how you thought about the architecture of the book. And, you know, I should say for readers that in between a preface and an epilogue, um, you've got nine chapters that are really astounding in, in sort of the, the range, not only of the geography that you cover, which you've already talked a little bit about, um, but also in terms of the kinds of sources that you use. So just for the listeners, you know, the first two chapters um, kind of introduce the book's arguments, as you talked about counter-sovereignty and modes of relationship. It's followed by then five historical chapters where you talk about railroad colonialism, and then there are four chapters each one on the Lakota, one on the Chinese, one on the Pawnee, and one on the Cheyenne. And then you end with two theoretical chapters, one about shareholder whiteness, and then uh, the ninth chapter on continental imperialism. So I'm curious how you thought about sort of setting up the argument for the book. I think, you know, for folks who may be graduate students or early career faculty who are thinking about their own book projects, how do you, how did you, um, given the kind of very intricate arguments that you're trying to scaffold um, and the major ideas you're bringing forward, plus the historical uh, sources that you're working with, why did you choose this particular architecture of two uh, sort of introductory chapters, five historical chapters, and then two theoretical chapters? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think, uh, so initially the manuscript actually looked, it, it let me say the dissertation looked like four chapters and they were the four historical chapters that um, uh, focus on a history of the railroad from the perspective of a different community. So the, the history of the railroad from the perspective of Lakotas, from the perspective of Pawnees, from the perspective of Cheyennes and from the perspective of Chinese workers. And what I initially wanted to do was uh, really break break out of a sense of, the railroad is really a unitary project 
um, producing any kind of, you know, unitary historical outcome, let's say, that there's a single story to be told. So I wanted to tell the, the, the history of the railroad from four very different perspectives, four very different vantage points. And so that's, that's how I began. And uh, then, you know, as, as I was revising the book and really thinking about how, how it can communicate the concepts most clearly to the reader, that's how I came to these three concepts that I, that I was just talking about. And uh, so the book then began to toggle between um, historical specificity and, let's say, theoretical interventions. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, what's the best way to lead a reader through this, through this project, through this process? And I think there are lessons from studying Marx and Du Bois closely. So, for example, in the first volume of Capital, um, the first chapter of Capital is in many ways the most abstract Capital, cap, chapter of the entire project. Um, it's it's really difficult, uh, really difficult concepts. But it's necessary to work through those concepts in order then to understand the many more concrete uh, chapters that come much later in the book, um, especially the chapter on the working day and on technology. So I took lessons from that organization uh, that. It's there. There are some concepts that are important to lay out in the very beginning, and uh, you know that, that's why I decided to start with those concepts of uh, counter sovereignty and modes of relationship. And I wanted to make them, you know, these are theoretical chapters, but I also want to make them concrete and specific historical moments. And then from there, I want I thought it'd be important for the reader to go to an understanding of railroads in the colonized world at large. One of the ways that I think the history of railroads in North America has largely been distorted is that it's generally understood in relationship to the history of railroads in Europe. And I think this is a distortion because uh, I think the the railroads in North America were built in a colonial situation. And so it makes much more sense to understand them in relationship to the history of railroads in Southern Asia, uh, across the African continent, and in China and Southeast Asia. Uh, and then to s- some degree also in, in uh, parts of South America, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Mexico, uh, Latin America. Uh, so uh, that's the chapter on railroad colonialism. And what that does is uh, the, first cha- the first sentence of that chapter is the United States is profoundly unexceptional. And I really want to take U.S. exceptionalism off the table. And I think one of the ways to do that is to, to, to situate the United States within the colonial world as part of the, let's say, situate North America as part of the colonial world. And, uh, you know, when we do that, then the history, I think certain things become clear. So, for example, the railroad network that was built in North America was built in the same historical period as the railroad network in, uh, that was built in, in Southern Asia, that was built there by British imperialists. Uh, and so, you know, the historical patterns, the people involved, uh, the relationship between the railroad companies and the colonial state, the, ra- the relationship between the railroad companies and military authorities and acts of warfare, all of these things become, there's some clarity with that. Uh, and after that period of historic, of r- railroad building in North America and South Asia, uh, the uh, pattern, the kind of locus of railroads moves to Africa. It's in the it's a central part of the European scramble for Africa is 
building, uh, building up railroads from the coast to the interior, both to capture resources and also to facilitate military conquest of African societies. And uh, around this time, towards the end of this period, then railroads start to be built in China through a system of what's called concessions, uh, where the, the Chinese imperial government uh, is, is offering what they call concessions to European empires and to, um, to specific railroad and financial, uh, you know, let's say, institutions located in specific European empires uh, to build railroads in China. Uh, and uh, that's really, in many ways, on the model of the, uh, the treaties that ended the opium, the, the various opium wars. And so when we understand uh, railroads, I think, in, in this larger context, I think it gives us then an important uh, context then to begin to, to understand the very specific histories of railroads in the different indigenous nations, uh, and then with Chinese workers that I go to. And then uh, once we understand, having, under, having led the reader through these specific histories in, a, let's say, the, the frame of the colonized world, and then in the frame of very specific colonized indigenous nations uh, or Chinese workers, then I wanted to expand the frame slightly theoretically then to bring the reader back to, to think about these concepts of what I call shareholder whiteness, which is I'm trying to track a transformation in the organization of corporations and the relationship between corporations and the state in North America and what this means for transformations in racism uh, and the organization of racial violence in North America. And then uh, move to continental imperialism and uh, that the theory, uh, the idea, the concept of continental imperialism. And all of these, I think I wanted to lead the reader to the epilogue, which is trying to understand this history as a key um, uh, for understanding the contemporary moment, understanding imperialism today, and vice versa, to understand our kind of questions about crisis, the crisis that we're living through today, is uh, key to open up questions that we can ask about the past. Right. I think one of the things that, that folks who are maybe skimming the book or, or looking at the table of contents, especially in the way that you've laid out, um, and I promise I will ask about the, 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 uh, the chapters in just a second, but one more question about the way that you set up the book and the intervention you're trying to make. One of the things that um, people who are um, looking at the table of contents might assume, and also from the subtitle of the book, which is Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcont Transcontinental Railroad, um, is that there may be some ways in which you're looking at the interrelationships between indigenous people and Chinese migrant workers. One of the things, though, that you write very early on is that you know, this book, Empire's Tracks, is not intended as a, uh, a work of recovery, right? You write that it doesn't focus on encounters between Chinese migrants and indigenous peoples. Um, and you're adopting a slightly different kind of perspective in the sort of five different chapters um, that are about each group um, and the sort of modes of relationship and uh, uh, counter-sovereignty that are invoked um, in each of their experiences. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to... to um, uh, take that particular approach, not to, you know, do this as a work of recovery, not to do this as um, a work of uh, uh, examining encounters between Chinese migrants and indigenous peoples. What, what uh, influenced you to, to take this particular approach versus another? Um, well, I think that 
the initial impulse to the project was really to understand in a critical way um, the United States as an imperial formation. And so there's a question that I ask in the book and I return to, and it's a question I'm, I'm still trying to answer. And it's really, in many ways, this is the question that drove this book is, uh, you know, what does, what does anti-imperialism look like from the vantage of North America? What's, what's the most concrete, uh, you know, uh, thought out, uh, historically reflective and conjunctural answer that I can give to that question? What does anti-imperialism look like uh, from the vantage point of North America? To answer that question, uh, I was drawn to these histories for what they could tell us about the formation of the United States as an empire, as an imperial formation, and what what they could tell us about the nature of imperialism on this continent. Um, So that led me away from the, the process of recovery. Um, I think in ethnic studies, in American studies more broadly, um, recovery has been a mode of work uh, to, let's say, go into the archives and find something new, find voices that have been forgotten, um, and uh, thereby, you know, shed new light on the nation, on the meaning of the nation and who belongs to the nation. Um, Those are not questions that uh, were interesting to me or drove the work for me. Um, the questions instead were, uh, in, instead of what hasn't been seen, what hasn't been known, what has been, what has been in our face all along? Uh, you know, this Chinese railroad workers have not been forgotten. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's anything that uh, most high school students in the United States uh, learn about Chinese immigrants is that they built the railroad. Uh, Native peoples, Plains Indians have not been forgotten. Indigenous peoples of the Great Plains. Uh, If there's any iconic image, uh, you know, in the racist colonialist mind, it's that of the indigenous Plains Indian. Um, And so these are not forgotten histories. These aren't forgotten perspectives. Um, That's not the contention for me. I think they're they're not forgotten. They're, They're remembered in the wrong way. Um, they're remembered in ways that shore up the sense of the nation, that really um, paper over the intense violence that, um, by which the United States claimed authority over the continent. Um, they're, they're remembered in ways that provide alibis for that violence and provide alibis for the, the ongoing violence that, uh, that, that we see that we're living through today. And so recovery for me wasn't wasn't the correct mode to address those questions, um, to gr- address the larger question of what is, what is uh, anti-imperialism look like from the vantage of North America? Um, you know, the, for, for this project, it didn't, it didn't seem like there were, uh, there were voices that I could turn to to re- recover or find in the archive that would provide the answer to that. Um, the answer to that instead was, uh, was the analysis of the history uh, the analysis of the sources. Here too, again, I think Black Reconstruction is a model. Um, Black Reconstruction models for us in many ways um, the, the work of writing the history. The last chapter of Black Reconstruction is the propaganda of history, in which Du Bois writes that, you know, these, at, at his time, the, the most famous, 
the most uh, well-known institutionally supported historians of the Civil War, of the history of the United States, were writing propaganda and they were writing white supremacist propaganda that denigrated multiracial democracy, that denigrated black political leadership and the dreams of African-Americans who freed themselves uh, from slavery through a general strike. That's the propaganda of history in Du Bois's terms. And that too is a, is a lesson that drives how I came to the scholarship uh, that's been written on the Transcontinental Railroad and on what's called Westward Expansion and how I came and approached, I came to the archives and approached the, the materials I found in the archives. So with that, maybe, um, and you've done such a great job of walking us through, again, the theoretical ideas uh, that you propose and the interventions that you make. I wonder if we could maybe dive uh, more deeply into uh, um, chapters really four through seven. And these are the chapters that are on the Lakota, the Chinese, the Pawnees, and the Cheyenne. Um, and, and to think a little bit with you about um, what each of these groups brings to your arguments about um, counter-sovereignty, about modes of relationship, um, and about continental imperialism. Um, the, the Lakota, um, you write in chapter four, um, uh, really are, are sort of pressed under the building of the Union Pacific Railroad under the 1862 Pacific Railroad Act and, and various other treaties. Um, which really show up as an infrastructure of violence, right? Rather than connection, you write, um, against the Lakota people. Um, the Chinese, um, as migrant labor, are used to impose counter-sovereignty over indigenous modes of, of relationships, which you've referenced in, in chapter two. I'm particularly curious, and for, for listeners who are interested um, from the perspective of Asian American studies, in your analysis um, and critique of, of the role of Chinese merchants. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, when it comes to the Pawnees, um, I think the, the point that you made so beautifully in that particular chapter was how the Pawnees have an ongoing and adaptive kind of modes of relationships that they practice in the face of continental imperialism. And, and one question I have for you there is thinking about the role of women, which seem to be a real concern for outsiders and why that is the case. And then finishing with the Cheyenne. Um, the way that you, you think about raids as anti-colonial insurgency, right? So going back to this idea of what anti-imperialism looks like from the vantage point of North America, uh, what the Cheyenne give us in that particular case, um, not only is anti-colonial insurgency, but also, as you write, um, as a method of procuring necessary resources that they need to survive. So, you know, thinking about these four chapters together, um, I wonder if you could maybe uh, talk a little bit about how each group sheds light on the or brings to life some of the theoretical ideas that you give us to think about in terms of counter uh, sovereignty, continental imperialism, and modes of relationship. Yeah, thank you. So uh, Lakotas, for me, the way I understand this history is uh, that Lakota people had uh, and and have a mode of relationship uh, that's that's based around the principle of expansiveness, and it really reflects. Uh, relationship with the the expansive lands uh, on which they live, their homelands, and this is a, a, a mode of relationship of forging alliance and forging new relationships. Uh, Lakota means ally, um, and so uh, it's it's a mode of relationship which develops in relation to buffalo herds and following the herds uh, through their homelands and living in relationship to the lands and to the herds, to the grass species with which the herds eat. 
Uh, and this expansive mode of relationship, I, I argue, really comes into a direct conflict uh, with the expansionist mode of relationship of the United States and of capitalism, uh, which is expansionist. Expansion, uh, capitalism, expansionist in terms of expanding the amount of capital, you know, this is an endless growth kind of paradigm, and also expansionist in terms of expanding the territory under its jurisdiction for the United States and for U.S. capitalism. And the expansiveness of Lakota relationships and the expansionist drive of U.S. capitalism, I, in my understanding, they, they, there, there can't be a synthesis between the two. They, 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 there, there can't be any kind of uh, point of, let's say, there can't be any middle ground. Um, it has to be one or the other. And this is a violent conflict on, uh, 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 on the, in the second half of the, of the, of the 19th century. And it's a conflict that's that's not resolved. It's a conflict that continues uh, to our own day. If you think about um, the recent um, high points of indigenous struggle on the plains uh, at Standing Rock and 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 elsewhere around pipeline politics, um, and so the it's the ex- expansiveness of Lakotas that really, in many ways, is trying to find uh, trying to find ways and, and is willing to find ways to as an expansive mode of relationship to, to actually find points of accommodation with the United States, with the railroad itself, with, with capitalism. And so I end the chapter with um, um, Lakota oral histories of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, which is the last treaty the United States signed uh, with Lakotas. Um, and in Lakota oral history, this is remembered as uh, actually uh, a treaty that was signed by the United States seeking peace with Lakotas, that Lakotas actually had the upper hand. Um, the, the U.S. had, uh, the Lakotas had the upper hand in negotiations. And in the oral histories, um, there's a memory that um, there was a negotiation over the railroad itself, that uh, Lakotas, by the treaty, would be recognized to have jurisdiction over the, the lands on one side of the tracks, and that the United States would have jurisdiction over lands on the other side of the tracks. And this is something that was called up in the mid-20th century, this, this, this living interpretation of the treaty. And that's an expansive kind of interpretation of the treaty and the relationship between these two, uh, these two political formations, these two ways of life, these two forms of economy. Um, and that's, a, that's a, an interpretation and a mode of relationship that the United States and that U.S. capitalism was was unable and unwilling to to uh, to fulfill to live up to. So, um, in the chapter on Chinese uh, railroad workers, uh, I really, as you said, I'm I'm really interested in the class formation of Chinese merchants and the relationship of Chinese merchants to Chinese workers here, and uh, you know, readers and scholars of Asian American history. We'll know the work of Cornell Chang, um, who, whose work I learned from and drew upon for my analysis here. Also the work of Mei Nai, uh, who has been doing work on uh, uh, Chinese people in uh, the gold fields in California and Australia. And the driving question for me in this, in this chapter, which I think is the question we need to answer in Asian American history, when we're looking at uh, the railroad, is you know why did the why did the railroad employ Chinese workers? Why this group when there were other groups in California 
in the region at the time. Why this reliance on Chinese workers? And the answers for me are um, the you know the particularities of racist violence that Chinese workers were experiencing. Um, but of course, those particularities weren't exceptional to Chinese people. In fact, they were the the racist violence that Chinese people experience. The tone of this was set with the colonial violence of uh, of really subjugating indigenous peoples of the Bay Area, um, the, the 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 hills and mountains around San Francisco, where indigenous peoples far outnumbered uh, non-indigenous peoples. Uh, you know when when this became when when this area was claimed by first claimed by the United States as its as its territory. So it's through a process of intense, really intense, shocking, uh, genocidal violence that this place uh, becomes part of the United States. And that that violence then sets the tone, sets the kind of, let's say, baseline, the everyday uh, for life in the gold fields and the violence that's faced by Chinese people, by Mexicans, by black people, by Chileans, by others. Um, but racial, racial violence is one side of the story of why the railroad relied so heavily on Chinese workers. I think another side of the story is the relationship between Chinese merchants and the railroad corporation and the workers. So the Chinese mer- merchants, for example, um, uh, the primary commodity that they offered to, uh, to the capitalist economy of California, the primary commodity that they offered was workers on demand. Uh, and I think this is a point that Su Chen Chan made in her brilliant book on Chinese agricultural labor and her brilliant history of Chinese ag- agricultural workers. So Chinese workers on demand. This is the primary commodity that Chinese merchants offer. And to the workers themselves, uh, the Chinese merchants, the merchants uh, sold them their food, um, provisioned their housing, the other provisions that they needed. Uh, this is unlike their white counterparts. Uh, whose food and housing and provisions were covered by, uh, it was part of their wage, it was covered by the railroad company. And so this is really significant for me when the workers, the Chinese workers, go on strike. Uh, and uh, they're, they're up in the Sierra Nevadas, tunneling through the Sierra Nevadas, and they, 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 they strategically, they chose a brilliant time to go on strike. This was a season where the company needed to make significant progress Otherwise, it was going to be in trouble, at least for the plan, their, their business plan. So they, they, they chose a perfect time to go on strike. Uh, and the, the demands, which were written in the San Francisco newspapers, their strike demands were things like um, the right to leave work when they wished, uh, the right not to be whipped at work. These aren't, you know, if you've ever been on a strike, uh, if your listeners have ever been on a strike, these aren't things that, uh, you know, at least at least so far, at least for most of us, these aren't things that we imagine is what you go on strike for. So this tells us something about the nature of uh, their their experience, their work experience, that they actually would organize a strike, you know, with these core demands in addition to a significant uh, wage increase. Now, uh, the strike went on, lasted for some time, and it was finally broken um, only because the merchants who were provisioning the food stopped sending the food. Uh, the Chinese merchants who provisioned the food to these workers stopped sending the food. So they were up in the mountains. Their food shipments stopped. They lasted for quite a bit of time, considering they didn't have food. But finally, they were starved back to work. They were starved into submission. So I think for understanding 
Chinese American history at this time. I'd say Asian American history more broadly. I think um, we we uh, we lose uh, we distort our understanding of the history of the political decisions and the choices at play when we ignore these dimensions of class formation and really these these intensely exploitative relationships. Um, in you know. Uh, uh, these intensely uh, intense forms of class exploitation within uh, Chinese American and more broadly Asian American communities uh, during this period. And so I think that's, for me, that's an important lesson uh, that I draw um, from my understanding of the history and also from my understanding, as I said, of the work of Cornell Chang, of June May, of Su Cheng Chen, and, and other scholars of Asian American studies and histories. So the chapter on Pawnee's uh, as you said, I, I focus here on um, the centrality of Pawnee women's relationships and, and work uh, over this long period of Pawnees really negotiating their ongoing relationship with the United States. Uh, Pawnees signed a series of treaties uh, with the U.S. in which the United States promised uh, protection and promised to defend Pawnees uh, and protect Pawnees. And it's interesting because, as you said, these you have these early missionaries, uh, Protestant missionaries, moving out to Pawnee lands and looking at the labor of Pawnee women, of Pawnee men, and using terms, words of, uh, terms of slavery uh, to describe the labor of Pawnee women. And, uh, uh, you know, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a way here in which they're uh, refusing to understand or unable to understand uh, Pawnee life. Uh, Pawnee modes of relationship. And there also, I think there's a commentary on uh, U.S. practices of slavery as well um, with these Northern Protestant missions. And uh, what I argue here is that it's not actually slavery, but it's it's the hard, you know, incredibly hard work that Pawnee women uh, did in their villages, in the fields, outside of their villages, uh, within their communities. Uh, that actually was the core of what Pawnees were fighting to maintain, uh, negotiating to maintain over this long, decades-long period of uh, negotiation with the United States um, until their removal uh, to Oklahoma. And so in many ways, the core of that history, the core kind of motive driver, let's say with Lakotas, if the, if the, if the railroad uh, really manifests in many ways this expansionist drive that really undercuts and, and is really... Uh, you know, and trying to drive through and override the expansiveness of Lakota relationships. Well, for Pawnees, uh, the railroad comes in and is trying to really displace, in many ways, it's a vehicle to displace uh, the relationships, uh, the work, the results of that work uh, that Pawnee women are producing in relation to the land, in relation to their grandchildren, in relation to, uh, in, in relation to each other. And finally, uh, the, the chapter on Cheyennes, uh, as you said, it's a question about resources, about how will Cheyennes access food, uh, other goods that they need uh, to maintain their livelihoods as a community. What the railroad does for Cheyennes is destroy the basis of intertribal trade. The Cheyenne nation, I argue, um, and I learned from scholars of Cheyenne history, uh, the Cheyenne nation had really established itself as a central kind of central player, central node in intertribal trade 
in North America, in Western North America, let's say. Um, and the success of the nation revolved around this, this, ro this role in trade. And the railroad comes through and in the process of negotiating or enforcing the rights for the railroad, the United States really bisects the whole region and, and, and really violently imposes violent limits on Cheyenne people who are moving through their own land, which then makes it impossible for them to, to go to the places where they have been trading for generations, to move through their lands, you know, uh, to the different sites of trade. So this creates a, a crisis, a, a quandary among Cheyennes. How will Cheyenne people feed themselves? How will they, you know, again, get the goods, the basic goods that they need to, to keep their communities alive? their families alive. And so in this chapter, um, I, I, my understanding of this period from, from reading the archives is that there's, there's two strategies and they're, they're not polar opposites. People are understanding these tr strategies in relation to each other. Uh, one is through uh, annuities, uh, which is engaging in diplomacy, really uh, careful strategic diplomacy, really in many ways, really brilliant diplomacy with the United States, Cheyenne, Cheyenne communities and political leaders engaging in this diplomacy in order to, um, in order to, to win concessions from the United States of food, of resources uh, that, would, that would enable Cheyennes to continue living with some autonomy on their lands. This is one strategy. And the other strategy is a strategy of uh, what I call a, a development of a rating economy. And so uh, in many ways, it, it really is the development of these insurgent communities that are developing uh, strategies to raid and take food and, and, and clothing and other goods that they need in order to maintain their community and maintain their control and their autonomy over their lands, their relationships with their lands. So there are four different uh, I guess the railroad has four different meanings in each of these, in, in, for, in my understanding, for each of these communities, for each of these histories. That's a, that's a really great um, uh, summary of, of, of all the different angles from which we can approach the history of the Transcontinental Railroad. One thing I want to just ask quickly um, is, um, you know, that in, in many of the chapters, it seems like the environment. Um, sort of looms in the background as maybe an additional actor between the groups of people you're writing about, uh, the corporations that you're writing about, um, and and the state. Um, in in the chapter on the Pawnees, for example, you you write you know that crop failures help to deepen kind of colonial power um, or or uh, reinforce colonial power over the Pawnees. So so how do you think about environmental history and the way that it is also tied up with um, histories of imperialism? Uh, and Asian American history. Well, for this, I you know, I'd, these are lessons I've learned as a student of Indigenous studies, a student of Indigenous politics. I mean, I understand indigeneity as a collective relationship in and with place. And one of the questions that I've been given from one of my teachers and mentors in Indigenous studies is the question, "Where am I?" It's a very simple question um, that can lead to a lifetime uh, of you know, of, of trying to really answer in a concrete kind of way. And, uh, you know, that that's what brings me to these questions of the environment and the ecology. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that relationship with place. Uh, it's a relationship in a place and a relationship with a place. And this structures then the cont contestation between, let's say, Lakota expansiveness and U.S. expansion. 
It's the place itself and the relations with the place and the transformation of the place through this contestation. And so in each chapter, uh, you know, this is at the forefront. And so for, I'd say for, you know, students of Asian American history or scholars of Asian American history, Asian American studies more broadly, I'd say, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing us back to really being attentive to the, to the question of place. What is the place that we're thinking about? And what are the relationships on that place? How were they formed in relation to the place itself? How, would they, how is the place maybe uh, holding these relationships? Um, you know, I think there's amazing, uh, beautiful, really devastating work on internment, um, which really takes place seriously. Um, what are the places where people were interned and how did that shape the experience of internment and the resistance of that process? And so to me, it's, um, I, I would say even more so than environment or ecology, I'd say it's place. It's the place itself and it's the relationship with the place. And again, I think for, for all of us scholars in different fields, for all of us um, involved in different types of different forms of politics, uh, I'd say these are lessons for us to, to, to draw from, from taking very seriously uh, indigenous politics and indigenous studies. Thank you, Manu. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, we are, we are uh, almost running out of time, but I do want to call attention to, I think, what, what is to me one of the most energizing parts of the book, um, um, which is, you know, in the epilogue, when you, when you ask us to think about where to go from here, right, what are the solutions that we should seek? And I think it, it's so striking, um, especially because you take us into the present moment, uh, the, the Coda Access Pipeline, and, and some of the other um, questions that have emerged in recent years, to, to think about decolonization in a way that centers Indigenous nationhood, to call for a general strike of Indigenous people, in the urban poor and the working class um, uh, as, as a way to work towards liberation. So I, I want to encourage listeners, um, you know, even though we've kind of focused the last half of our conversation on these more historical chapters, uh, to, to, to look forward to, to reading um, the, the uh, finishing chapters uh, of Empire's Tracks, uh, because I, I find it to be a, 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 such a uh, kind of inspiring way to, to end your discussion um, of, of this history. Manu, before we, we leave you, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you're uh, working on now. Um, um, I know that you've just uh, concluded um, a leave. Um, are you kicking off any projects uh, that you're excited about? I am, yes. Yeah, and thank you for saying that about the epilogue. In many ways, it's the launch. It's a launching pad for the project I'm working on now. Um, I have the working title, The War Finance Nexus. So, uh really building upon and expanding that idea from empire's tracks, that definition of imperialism. And I'm returning to that core question I, I said, I spoke earlier, uh, what does anti-imperialism look like from the vantage of North America? And in the war finance nexus, I want to look at what I think of as core strategies of anti-imperialism and core tactics of imperialism. So core tactics of imperialism, I would describe as siege, and one example would be the blockade of Cuba and coup. And with coup, let's say regime change, uh, you know, one example could be the long process of regime change in Iraq, uh, starting with the overthrow of the Iraqi socialist project in the 1960s. Um, and as core anti-imperialist strategies, I, I'm thinking about a concept called delinking, which is from a uh, the, the great intellectual Samir Amin, whose work I cite and engage closely in the epilogue. And for delinking, I'm thinking there about um, traditions of socialist pan-Africanism 
And finally, the last chapter is on internationalism, uh, which I think of as an anti-imperialist strategy. And there I want to draw again on the work of Amin to think about projects to build a new international of people's movements. Well, I can't wait for one to, to see where this um, conversation uh, evolves as you, as you look more into the war finance nexus. Um, Manu, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope that readers will, I think readers will get a lot out of uh, not only the, the histories um, that, that you give us, but also, again, I think there are some just really wonderful ideas here about counter-sovereignty, about continental imperialism, about the war finance nexus, and about modes of relationship that will be widely applicable to uh, scholars working in a number of fields. So thank you for offering those. Thanks so much, Ian. All right. Take care. Okay. That was my conversation with Manu Karuka, author of Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad, published in 2019 by the University of California Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.